I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. Time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, December 5th, 2011. Why do I feel like I'm not ready? Everything's in order. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Unfortunately, there is no shortage of just crazy and bizarre things being said about God. It's kind of needless and useless and really not even necessary. Why? Well, because God's revealed all kinds of stuff about himself, and it's found in God's Word. And so people are out there attacking God's Word uh, overtly, straight on, and then you got a whole bunch of people who are attacking God's Word, well, kind of surreptitiously, or uh, using a backdoor method, if you would, by twisting it and mangling it or uh, just not preaching particular parts of it or just avoiding certain parts. It, it's just, it's like the Wild West out there. That's about the only way that I can say it. So what we do is in this particular Wild West mentality, I, I'm not the sheriff, God's word is. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, I just happen to sit there and go, okay, pastor, yeah, you, you say this is what God's word says, hmm? God wants me to pray circle maker prayers. Hmm, okay. God wants me to pray for the sun stand still. Hmm, okay. God is insulted by small dreams. Hmm, okay, yeah. So I take these claims and then I just told them under the light of God's word to see if what the pastor's sell selling is true. And the weird thing is, is that so many of the Uber popular, super mega church, super apostle pastors, uh, what they're teaching just doesn't square with what God's word says. 
as a result of it, I think that there's a case to be made that many of these super apostle pastors uh, fall into the category of, um, well, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, uh, folks who ain't telling us the truth. They're not giving us the real, the real story. Uh, they are, uh, well, they're gorging themselves, if you would, on on God's sheep and uh, feeding off of their uh, their wallets and uh, and making all kinds of money with this ear tickling false doctrine that they're teaching. But but see, here's the deal is that uh, this is not something that you or me or anybody else is really going to want to mess around with because um, ultimately we have to stand before Jesus Christ and give an accounting. And and see, um, if you're not found in him, if you're not in Jesus Christ, if you haven't been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of your sins, if the real gospel hasn't been proclaimed to you and you haven't trusted the real gospel, but instead you have bought a lie, paid for a lie, thought the lie was the truth, and trusted in that false doctrine, that false gospel, that false teaching, that false teacher, well, then um, on the last day, you will not like what you're going to hear um, because that will kick off and inaugurate eternity in hell for you. And now I understand you thinking, Roseboro, look at the clock. Look at the calendar. Do you see the date on the calendar? It says December 2011. Who believes in hell anymore? Come on, doesn't love win? No, not the way Rob Bell says so. Because God is loving and he's just. And he's calling all of humanity to repent of their sins and to be forgiven and to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. The biblical gospel calls people to repentance and faith and trust. And as a result of it, um, well, it's the Bible pictures of it, if you would, is regeneration, being born again, raised from the dead. And this, these are not just mere pictures. This is a reality. This is an ontological reality with Christians. And if you go to your grave, having persisted in sin and unbelief, there's nothing in Scripture that even would remotely begin to give you some kind of a hint or a glimpse of hope that you've got a snowball's chance in Hades of avoiding Hades. And so we Christians are called to proclaim the biblical gospel and and to warn people about false teachers, false prophets, idolatry, false Christs, and all kinds of stuff like that. And, uh, and to basically, you know, he, the devil is, just put it this way, he's pulled out all the stops. He does not want people trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And uh, and as a result of it, he's found a very clever way nowadays to uh, keep people from hearing the biblical gospel. And that is is that he has resuscitated, literally brought back from uh, the dead, if you would, just about every pernicious heresy you can possibly imagine and unleash them all at the same time. You know, you, you think about it this way. Okay, the Center for Disease Control is one of the few places, I think they're in Atlanta, one of the few places on planet Earth that has living um, cells of the smallpox virus. Okay, there's only a couple of places left on the planet where the smallpox virus exists. 
okay? And it's in a lab, okay? And uh, so if you were to think of heresy like you would like a horrible pandemic killer disease like smallpox, okay? And uh, and the thing is is that heresy is worse than smallpox. Smallpox can only kill your body. Heresy sends you to hell for eternity. So, you know, if you think of each and every heresy as a killer disease that man over the years has overcome, okay, has put down, um, with the exception of a few vials of the stuff, or, you know, of, of the of the virus existing in, in laboratory so that you can, you know, study it, okay? Uh, think of heresy as like that. You know, what happened? The Aryan heresy cropped up, you know, what is it, 4th, uh, 5th century? And, uh, and the Christian church put that thing down. Well, all of a sudden, the Aryan heresy sprung back up uh, with the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, cult. Okay, and you know, and so you know, all of the ancient heresies have come back with a vengeance. It's it's the equivalent of basically unleashing the smallpox virus on a world that hasn't seen it in a hundred years, or two hundred years, or three hundred years, and as a result of it, people don't they haven't built up an immunity to it, and it's it's this crazy days we live in. It's like all of these ancient heresies have all come back at like the same time and every one of them has been unleashed on the uh, on the church and just to make matters worse some heresies have been spl- the, the, their genetic code has been spliced together with other heresies and so you've got these weird hybrid heresies uh, gnostic pelagianism and things like that you know these hybrid diseases that have never existed before and they've all been let loose on the church and, um, well, we're trying to help inoculate as many people as humanly possible via this uh, radio program to uh, warn you that uh, that those these these false doctrines that you're that people are being exposed to and falling for in the churches, it, you know when when somebody believes these false doctrines, it it's like coming down with the smallpox virus these people are infested with a false doctrine with a false gospel with a by taught by a false prophet a false teacher or a false christ and they've come basically under the wiles of and into slavery to the devil and his false teaching and if god doesn't grant them repentance and the forgiveness of their sins for their false teaching their eternal prognosis looks bleak. That's what's at stake. And that's the direness of that situation, in part, is what motivates me to do what I do on a daily basis. So what we do is politically incorrect. It's not um, It's not for the faint of heart. I guarantee you that uh, just give me a, you know, five, ten minutes and I'll step on your toes. Um, but again, this is not anti-love that motivates people, uh, me, what I'm doing, and others who do similar work. It's actually love itself that motivates us to this, because the idea of of standing by and saying nothing while the gospel is attacked, while the gospel is denied, while false teaching is rising in the church, and people are believing it, and their very souls are at stake, so to say nothing. That is hate. 
speaking the truth, that's love. So, all right. So let's t- 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 you know talk about what we're going to talk about in today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I guarantee you, I probably won't even have time to get to uh, it, uh, like all of this. But you know, let's talk about what I want to talk about, and then I'll kind of you know if, if I don't get to a story today. Uh, we'll get to it tomorrow. I've got a um, third eagle of the apocalypse update. Oh boy! Anyway, yeah, the the latest uh, YouTube video posted just a couple of days ago by William Tapley, the um, self-proclaimed third eagle of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times. He's got a new video entitled "Barack Obama's Dream and Bible Prophecy," and yeah, oh man. I pass this along, and the reason why I, I sometimes people go, why is it that you do the William Tapley stuff? Here's the reason why. Okay, think of William Tapley as discernment training wheels. Okay, it's obvious the guy is self deluded. Okay, his ideas are laughable. Okay, but see the thing is, is that what's at the core of what's wrong with William Tapley? Madness aside is that he believes he's hearing directly from God. Funny thing. So do all, so do all of the seeker-driven vision-casting pastors. They believe the same thing. So here's the deal. William Tapley doesn't dress in skinny jeans. He doesn't pastor a mega church. He doesn't have a big praise band. And as a result of it, he doesn't preach sermons on a regular basis where he can have the you know the the praise band playing the sappy music behind him as he teaches his false doctrine as a result of it it's like all of the same stuff without the uh, without all the the cool relevant trappings as a result of it you sit there and go this is ridiculous but see here's the deal <laughs> william tapley's problem is the same problem that a lot of seeker driven guys have he's tested positive for the same strain of the same heresy and uh, and so it's really easy to spot with William Tapley. And when you learn how to spot it with him, you'll begin to spot it with other folks. Okay, so we got that. Um, I got a news story. Eddie Long has uh, apparently stepped down for a time. Um, Eddie Long is um, the embattled preacher uh, who had all these um, young men coming forward, basically accusing him of sexual harassment and uh and you know in some cases you know more than just harassment but uh, we got that to take a look at i've got a pyromaniacs uh update from spurgeon spurgeon talking about evolution which i thought uh, this was posted by phil johnson and uh, what spurgeon says here about evolution is absolutely worth passing along and then last week i promised that i you know that i would play for you audio from one of the major 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 uh, seeker-driven, uh, in-the-reformed-camp uh, pastors and uh, uh, his twisting of the Bible regarding teaching regarding tithing. The uh, the pastor in question is James McDonald of Harvest Bible Chapel in uh, in the, the greater Chicagoland area up there in Chicago, Illinois. And, uh, and I've got audio with him saying some pretty crazy things uh, regarding tithing and uh, engaging in dubious biblical hermeneutics in order to back up his points. So I've got that I'll be playing today. And then in hour number two, I've got a fantastic lecture. Um, it, 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 I, I cannot speak highly enough about this 
particular lecture. The I, I got a uh, listener who is my friend on Facebook. His name is Tim Reeves. And he said, Chris, would you please, that, that's how it, yeah, that's, if, if you were to find this on my Facebook wall, that's what it says. It says, would you please, <laughs> would you please compare and contrast uh, the risky living sermon thing with this sermon by Dr. Albert Muller called The Year of Living Dangerously? And he sent me the link. And, um, and so I took a look at it. And uh, took a listen, and holy smokes, this is really good. So, you know, here's the deal. Okay, i, I got to make something really clear here, okay? I have, If I haven't, if you haven't heard me say this, then let me reiterate it. I have the ultimate respect for Dr. Al Muller of uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, or Southern Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. This man is a theological mensch. Now, that being said, he's absolutely wrong regarding the sacraments, but um, um, that's for another time. But uh, this sermon, now, I've been playing a lot of sermons, you know, from the seeker-driven guys, basically claiming that uh, you've got to live large, you've got to dream the impossible dream, you've got to risk engage in risky living, because God isn't happy with the mundane or any, you know, things like that. Well, let's just put it this way. Uh, <laughs> Albert Muller explains in this lecture slash convocation sermon that you're going to hear entitled The Year of Living Dangerously, um, he gives us the true biblical teaching about the dangers of being a Christian and being one who believes and proclaims the biblical gospel. And the the comparison and contrast between the silliness that's being taught regarding risky living in the uh, seeker-driven pulpits to what Albert Muller preaches in this convocation sermon, the, the uh, I mean, it's night and day. And so you are not, 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 want, you don't want to miss it. That That's the, the only way I could say it. you don't want to miss this. It's just absolutely that good. It's fantastic. It is without peer. It's so, so amazing. So uh, that's what's going to make up the uh, the program today. Make yourself comfortable. Uh, fuzzy bunny slippers if you're living in cold weather. Uh, right now, those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, I apologize, but uh, the, this, this fuzzy bunny slipper season is probably not for you right now uh, as you are uh, you know, in the thick of spring and heading into summer. So I uh, just you know want to let you all know that you know we're listened to you know regularly now in you know in 62 different countries uh, according to our latest stats. So I just wanted to let you all know that. But uh, anyway, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and we're going to start off with this. Sing it if you know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. The end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. 
boom, 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 boom. All right, enough of that. So, uh, <laughs> The End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M., the uh, recently disbanded band that I don't even think they were – have they done anything b- even recently before they disbanded their band? Anyway, so it's, that's probably a different question for a different time. So uh, William Tapley, uh, the third eagle of the apocalypse, um, yeah, well, um, he, he's got a YouTube channel. You can find it at youtube.com, uh, youtube.com forward slash third eagle books, uh, youtube.com uh, forward slash third eagle books. This is a man who believes he's heard directly from God. He claims to be a prophet in his own right. And, um, and well, he, from time to time, engages in what he describes as biblical numerology. Now, understand that in the Bible, there are symbolical numbers. I'm not denying that. I'm just denying that <laughs> William Tapley knows anything about what he's talking about when he tries to discuss biblical numerology. Here, listen in. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. On this program, I want to demonstrate how God will reveal to us who Barack Obama is through biblical numerology. Oh, no. (laughs) Barack Obama is 444, especially as found in the book of Daniel. So I, I didn't know this, but Barack Obama is found in the book of Daniel. Who knew? Now, in my last program, I pointed out that Daniel uses the word king 44 times in his chapter number two. He does this for a reason. That is not accidental. Those 44 kings indicate that chapter number two of the great prophet Daniel is about Barack Obama. Uh, can, can, can I point out the obvious here? Um, the chapter headings, uh, the chapter numbers in any of the Bible books, not one of them is part of the inspired text. Yeah, um, those came a lot later. And so here's the deal. when If we were to find the original autograph, let's just say for some bizarre series of events slash miracles we were, you know, had an archaeological dig somewhere outside of Babylon, and wouldn't you know it, they found the home of Daniel and then dug up, you know, dug around that home and found that it, in an earthen clay pot uh, were the original autographs of Daniel's original um, book uh, penned with his, with his handwriting. Um, if we were to find that, guess what? There would be not a single chapter number or verse number anywhere in the original autographs. Yeah, it's true. And so um, we got a problem here, and that is is that he's claiming that this is somehow from God, that there's 44 mentions of the word king in Daniel chapter 2. You know, like references like, oh, king, may you live forever, things like that. Um, and somehow this pr- has some connection into... Um, Barack Obama, but I'm kind of pointing out the obvious here is that, yeah, um, that the the chapter two is kind of an arbitrary thing that was put on the text later in history as an apparatus to help us, you know, locate particular sections of scripture. 
So I'm, you know, questioning the, you know, the, well, the veracity here of the claim because, you know, if we were to have the autograph, you know, you wouldn't know where to begin counting or end counting. And so as a result of the number 44, yeah, that's not really there. More than three years ago, before the election, I warned America that Barack Obama was the leopard, as found in Daniel chapter 7, verse number 6. And last year, you also said that the Super Bowl wouldn't be played, and it was. And he was the last king of the South, as found in Daniel 11, verse number 40. And God verifies this by having him born on August the 4th. Barack Obama was born on 8-4-61. And of course, 8 breaks down into two fours. He is 4-4-4. Four, four, four. Uh, yeah, and 8 also breaks out into four twos. I mean, seriously. It also breaks into a 3 and a 5. I mean... In Bible prophecy. Since Obama was born on August 4th, that means he was born under the sign of Leo. In Daniel chapter numbers... Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't leopards and lions two different things? Seven, he is the leopard, which is a spotted lion, or Leo. He is the 44th president, elected on the 4th of November. And remember, the leopard has four heads and four wings. Weren't you just a month ago trying to warn us about all the evil dates of the month of November? I mean, I don't remember any of those actually panning out. And in Jeremiah, chapter 50, verse 44, Obama is described as a lion. In other words, a Leo. None of this numerology is accidental. God is revealing to us through the number 444 who Barack Obama really is. Now, is this unusual? Yes, it's very unusual. For God to use numerology to reveal who people are? Not at all. The book of Revelation says that we will know who the Antichrist is through the number 666. Now, let's look and see how Barack Obama... Yes, Christians have been talking about 666 for a long time. Uh, but nobody's been talking about 444. ...himself reveals who he is, particularly through that amazing dream which he had, which he describes in his autobiography, Dreams from My Father. Now, I won't read for you Barack Obama's entire dream. I have done that for you on previous programs. You should review those programs because, really, it is an amazing message from God to Obama and to us. Oh, man. Particularly to us. If Obama understood his dream, he would have never put it in his book. Now, in this program... Luckily, the third eagle of the apocalypse hears directly from God and is therefore capable of interpreting Obama's dream. I want to concentrate on the numerology of Barack Obama's dream. Remember, dreams come from God, and this is a message, not only to Obama, but to us. And he uses four descriptions of the huge figure, which is confronting Obama. If you've watched my previous programs, you know that this huge figure, which came from a leopard, represents Barack Obama himself. Panting for breath, I turned around to see the day 
turned into night. Now Obama has this dream on a train traveling with his half-sister back to his homeland of Kenya. The day turned into night refers to the end times, the times we are in now, the 11th hour. And a giant figure looming as tall as the trees. Now this giant figure is as tall as the trees because it indicates Barack Obama's stature as President of the United States and as, in fact, the leader of the free world. Wearing only a loincloth. Now, of course, this is very significant. It means that Barack Obama is a very primitive person at heart. He is not civilized. He is the last person who should be leading the most powerful armies in the world. And all that's in the symbol of a loincloth, okay. Maybe you remember his speech that he gave at the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, I didn't listen to it. He used the word war 44 times. No. I predicted long ago that Obama would be a man of war and not a man of peace. And he continues... You also said that the um, that World War Three has started with some skirmish that took place in Korea, um, is it more than a year ago now, like a year and a half ago, and there's like nothing happening. And wearing a ghostly mask. Now this means that Obama is a great deceiver. He is not telling us who he really is, but God is telling us through this dream. The lifeless eyes bored into me. This means that Obama is spiritually dead because the eyes are the light of the soul, according to the Bible. And I heard a thunderous voice saying only that it was time. This voice comes from God, not from the figure. And this meaning of time is that this is the end of time or the 11th hour. Is it unusual for God to reveal the character of a person through a dream in the Bible. Okay. <laughs> I'm sitting here in pain. Okay. It's, it's like, what does any of this have to do with anything? Now, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. What gets lost in just about every single William Tapley video? clear proclamation of Christ and him crucified for our sins. Uh, this is a guy who, in the name of religion, who thinks that he's hearing directly from God, spends days, weeks, months, years, analyzing and trying to interpret and solve apocalyptic puzzles. And he sees apocalyptic puzzles in places where few see them. But here's the deal is that his fascination and obsession with apocalyptic puzzles and numerology and stuff like that is shared by a lot of people in the church. And here's the fun part. I've spent enough time in the church to know from experience that there are people who would disassociate with you, disfellowship with you, if you didn't come to the same conclusion as they did regarding an apocalyptic puzzle they've been gnawing on for a little bit of time or disagree with them regarding you know, biblical numerology and things like that. And to which I basically say, this is all a distraction. 
This is a distraction. This is one of the distractions that exists in the church that the, that Satan uses to snare people's mind and get them focused and thinking and abiding on and chewing on anything other than Jesus. And it comes in the form of people who, well, for the most part, you could say, would start it off with good intentions. They just want to understand what the Bible's teaching. Um, but many of these apocalyptic puzzles, um, the solutions that they've come to, yeah, they're fanciful. I mean, I grew up in the uh, in the church during the time of the, the you know the the book, the late great Planet Earth, and I, I hate to say it, but the Earth has far outsurvived the book, the late great Planet Earth. I remember the next book in the series regarding the 1980s countdown to Armageddon. Now, in case you're wondering, the 1980s, well, they be very far in the rearview mirror, so far in the rearview mirror that from time to time when I'm flipping radio channels and listening to music on the radio, some of my favorite 80s songs end up being billed as oldies from the 80s. Of course, whenever I hear that phrase, I want to reach into my radio and find the head of the DJ saying such words and pinch it. But uh, that's not possible, so I just have to clench my teeth and bear it because, yeah, the 80s were a while ago. So um, so that's the thing, um, is that this all is a distraction. And when you are tempted to be distracted in the same way that William Tapley is distracted, keep in mind, the thing that you're not focusing in on is what the cleared passages in the scripture teach the ones that are meant that we're meant to understand meditate on and have our minds transformed by so uh, william tapley well he's got the same problem that a lot of folk have in the christian church and that is distracted by apocalyptic puzzles away from sound biblical doctrine and the clear proclamation of Christ and him crucified for our sins. Okay, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. The management of Marty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. 
When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Seitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Seitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet earth don't miss out on getting both rabbi michael zeitler's anointed audio cd sound of the shofar plus his brand new prophetic book why israel is supernatural for a donation of 25 dollars shipping and handling is included ask for offer number 9081 call or write today Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, uh, over-obsession on trying to solve apocalyptic numerical puzzles will most certainly lead you away from Christ and Him crucified for our sins, not toward Him. Be careful. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. As you consider your year-end giving, would you also put on the list Fighting for the Faith? The way you support us financially is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see the uh, previously mentioned and often mentioned uh, yellow buttons. There's two of them. There are two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute six ninety five every month. That's $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. And, of course, if you like to make a one-time contribution, you do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, from the Christian Post, 
Headline reads, Eddie Long takes break from megachurch amid divorce filing. Okay, now, here's the deal. Okay, this is like way overdue. Something's really wrong here. Eddie Long should have taken a break from his megachurch um, when the allegations kept surfacing and resurfacing regarding his inappropriate sexual advances and sexual relationships with young men in his church. Um, and so now he's taking action. He's going to take a brief, brief, brief uh, leave of absence to to take care of uh, family issues now that his wife has filed for divorce. But uh, Michelle A. Vu of the uh, Christian Post writes, she says, Bishop Eddie Long, the Atlanta megachurch pastor, who was embroiled in a sexual misconduct case with four young men this past year. Four young men this past year. Announced Sunday that he's taking a break from the church just days after his wife filed for divorce. In front of thousands of New Birth Missionary Baptist Church congregants, Long announced that he will take time off in order to focus on his family. Quote, I'm still your pastor. You still, you'll still receive my direction, Long said with his wife, Vanessa, and two of their children standing by his side. The Atlanta Journal and Constitution reported, quote, you've given me some weeks to take care of some family business. The announcement comes amid a whirlwind of confusing and contradictory news that Vanessa Long filed for divorce. News broke Friday that Vanessa had filed for divorce Thursday just to be contradicted hours later by the megachurch which issued, which issued a statement saying that it's the that its first lady had experienced a change of heart and had withdrawn the suit. And then shortly after the church's statement, Vanessa's attorney uh, released a separate statement clarifying that their client intends to follow through with the divorce. Consistent with her original statement made this morning, Mrs. Long continues to hope that this matter may be resolved expeditiously, harmoniously, and fairly. However, she has determined that dismissal of her divorce petition is not appropriate at this time. So it's unclear at the moment whether or not the divorce suit has now been withdrawn or not. So that's what's going on. But see, here's the deal. Okay, um, what is it with these megachurch pastors that have no accountability that when allegations from not one, not two, not three, but four young men surface regarding sexual misconduct, not one, not two, not three, but four young men um, just this past year surface about sexual misconduct that he stays in the pulpit. But um, uh, but n nothing happens until his wife files for divorce. Um, something is screwy here in the accountability section of um, Eddie Long's church. So let's just put it that way. So um, this is obviously a tragic situation. And the thing is, is that this whole situation is extremely tragic on multiple levels, including on the level of the four young men who came forward saying that they were sexually abused by Eddie Long. At least that's what the allegations were. Now understand, um, that's what they are at this point. And apparently there's, you know, from what I understand, there's been, um, uh, settlements uh, regarding the four young men that may involve money. That may involve money about them not discussing the details of the uh, agreement being made. 
things like that. So anyway, so there you go. That's, you know, kind of what's going on here. And let's uh, change gears. And uh, I'm going to engage in some gratuitous, um, well, um, gratuitous music, if you would, in order to uh, make the point here. Now, normally I reserve this music for um, um, people in the prosperity heresy, but this since this is a this is about a twisting of scripture uh that has to do with money i'm going to use it for that today uh, even though the pastor in question um i don't think anyone could fairly say that he's in the uh, prosperity heresy or subscribes to it in any particular form but uh h- here we go the extended version here grooving out gotta love that bass line by the way this is the group known as the OJs People will even, uh, pastors will even rob their sheep blind. Alright, enough. See, gotta admit, I really enjoy that song. Anyway, so uh, here's the deal. I, I want to make something perfectly clear, okay? And that is this is that the Bible does talk about the need for sheep to support financially those who make their living from preaching the gospel, okay? However, Scripture's clear that uh, Christians are to give as they've set aside for the Lord and not under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. People who are Christians who have been set free from bondage to sin, death, and the devil have a completely different reason 
why they give to a church. It's not because they're trying to buy from God the tangible and intangible, tangible and intangible blessings of God, as if somehow you can purchase those. It's not because if you don't, God's going to smite you, or worse, send the destroyer to destroy you. No, it's none of the above. Okay, uh, it's instead the reason why Christians give is because they have been set free from sin, death, and the devil, and they understand that the most valuable, valuable thing on the planet is not a car, it's not a bank account, it's not a 401k, it's not a boat, it's not an airplane. The most valuable treasure on planet Earth is the free forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross, and therefore those who preach and proclaim that gospel are worth their weight in gold because you can't put a price tag on what it cost for you to be set free from bondage to the devil. Therefore, it's understanding this, that we now have by Christ's grace, by his freedom, by him setting us free, we are now free to help Unleash our neighbors from bondage to the devil by by basically financially supporting those who make their living from proclaiming the gospel, from proclaiming sound doctrine, from pro, you know those who are out there in the trenches fighting the battle and uh, and you know getting shot at and the ones who are really you know the ones out there that God is using as ambassadors to set people free from bondage to their sin through the proclamation of the good news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself those guys you partner with them in order to help get that message out that sets people free you know one of the things that you know is a popular um is is a popular cause that people have taken up with good reason too is is the issue of sex trafficking i mean when you look at the the statistics regarding that and the lives that are wrecked and ruined as a result of sex trafficking i mean how can you not be how can i i don't know how anybody can sit through a, a news story or a presentation that says something you know that gives you an idea of the magnitude of what's going on in the sex trade uh, that makes you, number one, incensed and angry, and number two, not motivate you to want to do something yourself to help help stop this horrible slavery that's uh, being foisted on mostly young women, but men as well, okay? But see, here's the deal. We all get incensed about sex trafficking and want to do something about it, but here's the deal. Each and every one of us was born dead in trespasses and sins and slaves and children of the devil. The devil is trafficking in all of us, and the good news needs to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, right? So that's the idea. Your financial support of your pastor makes it so that the gospel rings forth in your community and in your neighborhood and in your block so that people will hear the gospel and they will be set free from the bondage and slavery and the trafficking that they are in as a result of the devils enslaving them. Okay, so that's the idea. So, you know, but understand, there are clear passages that say this. 
That being said, a pastor is abusing his biblical authority when he twists God's word in order to manipulate people to make a commitment financially and to do so under compulsion. The Bible nowhere permits this. When a pastor makes a case about stewardship and partnering with the gospel and supporting the the office of the pastor and supporting those who are making their living from preaching the gospel, he must, you know, that pastor must make his case using sound biblical hermeneutics so that what happens is, is that that appeal doesn't cross the line, doesn't cross the line uh, from true doctrine to false doctrine and enslave people even uh, and and then therefore enslave people to a false idea. You understand what I'm saying? So money is a t- touchy subject and it needs to be handled correctly in God's word. That being said, what I'm about to play for you is audio from a recent commitment Sunday at James McDonald's Harvest Bible Chapel in Greater Chicagoland where unfortunately James McDonald twisted he twisted God's word and made it say things that it doesn't say. And as a result of it, his teaching regarding um, regarding money crossed the line from sound doctrine to false doctrine. Yeah, here, l- listen in. I, I, I picked this up partway through his, uh, through his uh, Commitment Sunday sermon. Here we go. All... Glory is God's, all belongs to God, all comes from God. Therefore, if you're short here today, say, well, James, we're, we're having a hard time holding it together in our house. We can barely make the ends meet. We're just hardly hanging on. I'm just telling you, we're just hanging on. Okay? Understand that? That's a spiritual problem that God has allowed in your life. And, and, and the answer needs to be a spiritual solution. Look at. So if, if you are, if you find yourself in a situation where you are financially in dire straits, that's a spiritual problem. You know, here's the deal. Um, you think that this argument would fly in a third world nation where the average person literally makes two to seven dollars a day do you think that'll fly see the reason why you're making two to seven dollars a day well this is a spiritual problem you see the reason why you're living in abject poverty in this third world nation is because you haven't cleaned up your act with god and if you want to make more than two to three four dollars a day you're gonna need to you need you're gonna need to show god that you're serious in order for him to bless you with more money this is not what the Bible teaches. Let's continue. Make the ends meet. We're just hardly hanging on. I'm just telling you, we're just hanging on. Okay? Understand that? That's a spiritual problem that God has allowed in your life. And, and, and the answer needs to be a spiritual solution. Look at... For those of you who are generous and faithful and have come prepared to express such again today, you can anticipate God's faithfulness to you. For those of you who've been living in in disobedience, withholding tithes and offerings, disobeying the biblical teaching on partnership with God, you should expect that your shortfall is the result of your own disobedience and you should prepare now to make a pledge to break that bondage. 
to disobedience to God in the matter of your finances. So, uh, yeah, if you're in financial dire straits, you need to make a pledge to God because you've been withholding tithes and offerings, and that's the reason why you're in financial dire straits. Yeah, that's the reason why you lost your job. That's the reason why your company went bankrupt, so that God can punish you. Obedience, and you should prepare now to make a pledge to break that bondage, to disobedience to God in the matter of your finances. God owns it all. I don't need somebody to fire me up. I just need the facts. Just tell me the way it really is. All right. This I know for sure. God owns it all. If you keep doing what you've always done, you're going to keep getting what you've always gotten. Okay? It's time to do something different. I'm going to make a crazy pledge. I'm going to I'm going to step out by faith and give God some of you are saying, "Should I make a pledge to the campaign?" Yes, you should. Yes, you should. Here's the second thing. This I know for sure, that God owns it all. Secondly, that partnership with God is the best way out of a drought. You promised you'd turn. Turn right. Or is it left? Left to 1 Kings. I wish my pastor knew the Bible better. 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17. We won't spend a lot of time here. We spent a whole message on this a month ago. This is the theme passage for our 5G campaign. A year ago, we delayed the campaign. We delayed the usage of our television studio in Aurora. We delayed the expanded space in Niles. We delayed a youth room in Crystal Lake and Elgin. Uh, we delayed the uh, many uh, things that are needed here in Rolling Meadows. Uh, we delayed a lot because of the financial, economic drought. That's why we delayed it. Okay? That's the reason why we made the delay. Hmm. Well, you were just saying that uh, economic financial droughts are spiritual problems. Maybe you had all of that because you were disobedient to God. The uh, many uh, things that are needed here in Rolling Meadows, uh, we delayed a lot because of the financial economic drought. That's why we delayed it. Okay. That's the reason why we made the delay. Kathy and I were away this summer. We were praying, should we go ahead with the campaign? We told the people we'd wait a year. I wasn't sure. I said to the leaders of the church, you tell us what we should do. All the leaders came back unanimously and said, we should do it. And I said, that's interesting because the Lord laid on my heart this story in 1 Kings 17. Now notice, he said that the Lord laid this story in 1 Kings 17 on his heart. Think back to last week. And remember that Patricia King of the Extreme Prophetic Gang also gave a little teaching on 1 Kings 17. See if you can spot any noticeable qualitative difference in, in Patricia King's mishandling of this text and James McDonald's. Now remember, the Lord laid this passage of scripture on his heart that's what he said and i said that's interesting because the lord laid on my heart this story in first Kings 17 
This entire story is about a drought in the nation of Israel sent by God to get people's attention. God led Elijah to a widow who had a son. They were down to their last meal. Look up here. They were down to their last meal. Bad time for a campaign, right? Elijah showed up. She said, I'm gathering a couple of sticks, verse 12. I go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't fear. Do as you've said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. God first, then me. God first, then me. Say it. God first, then me. That's how it works. And so, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. That was the miracle that came because she took a, even though she had nothing, she gave what she had. And God honored her faith and met her need. I went down to Dallas this Okay, yeah, let's take a look at that passage again. Does 1 Kings chapter 17 teach God first, then you? Does it teach that the reason why the widow of Zarephath's flour and oil didn't run out was because of her? faithfulness. The text actually teaches us very clearly. If you have your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Okay. So he arose, went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I might go and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Notice verse 14 makes it clear. Now, the way James McDonald told the story, he put a pause and stuck a whole bunch of stuff between Uh, verse 13 and 14. But when you read it in context, in the natural flow of the narrative, it's clear that the promise is made before she does anything. Why was it that the flower wasn't spent? Because God said that it wouldn't be. What is the reason why the oil was not empty? It's because Yahweh himself, the God of Elijah, made it clear that the oil would not run out. Not because of her faithfulness, not because of her obedience, but because of God's faithfulness. The word of the Lord first came to Elijah, then Elijah gave the word of the Lord to the widow of Zarephath. Plain and simple. Her obedience had zero to do with it. None whatsoever. This is not, by the way, a passage that teaches us 
anything about tithing. Nowhere in this text is tithing mentioned. This isn't about tithing. The widow of Zarephath is a pagan. She is a Gentile. She's not under the Israeli command to tithe. She doesn't have to give a tenth of her money to support the Levites at all. So this isn't about tithing. And by James MacDonald claiming that God laid this on his heart and then him twisting the Bible, this rises to the level of breaking the commandment that says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In other words, what James MacDonald engaged in was Bible twisting and a form of blasphemy by twisting this text and then blaming his twisted understanding of it on God. You can't get tithing or anything that has to do with tithing out of this passage when you read it in context. And when you read it in context with the natural flow of the narrative, it doesn't say anything about the reason why the oil running out or not, uh, uh, not running out was had anything to do with the obedience of the widow. It had to do with the word of the Lord that promised that it wouldn't. You see, when you try when you take this out of context and you make it about her obedience, what do you lose? the word of God and the faithfulness of God and the real reason why the oil, the flour and the oil didn't run out. And like I said, this has absolutely nothing to do with tithing. Beware of pastors who twist Malachi and twist 1 Kings chapter 17 to make it teach things that it doesn't teach regarding tithing. Just keep that in mind. Beware we are cheerful givers, we Christians, and we give what we've set aside in our heart, knowing that God loves a cheerful giver, and we don't give out of compulsion. We give out of the freedom that comes with the gospel. All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back with a fantastic lecture, convocation sermon from uh, Dr. Albert Muller. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance, we preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith. Obviously, I didn't get to everything I wanted to get to. I'll have to get to the Spurgeon one tomorrow. In fact, I'm kind of looking forward to that. <clears throat> but in the meantime, i got something really great for you. Uh, I'll wait to cue up the music, though. I, I want to get ahead of myself. I really am excited about this lecture. <clears throat> Hang on. I'll sit on my hands. <laughs> Sitting on my hands. Here we go. ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon is, well, a convocation lecture delivered by Dr. Albert Muller on August 21st of 2008. But the wonderful thing about truth is that there is like no shelf life for it. It just is good forever. The name of the convocation sermon lecture thing is entitled The Year of Living Dangerously. Yeah, you heard that right. The Year of Living Dangerously. And, and the reason why I'm playing this is because Tim Reeves, a listener uh, who also is my friend on Facebook, suggested that I take a listen and he asked me to please compare this to other uh, <laughs> dangerous, risky living sermons that we've heard from the seeker-driven guys. As always, um, it's like going to be almost impossible to add anything of substance to <laughs> what Dr. Muller is saying, but man, is this good. Do you want to hear what, uh, how dangerous it is to really be a Christian? <clears throat> what the real risks are? This is the lecture for you. All right, hang on a second here. I, I gotta kill this music. There. So, uh, without any further ado, I would like to present to you Dr. Albert Muller of Southern Theological Seminary and his lecture entitled "The Year of Living Dangerously." Here we go. We are here because we have been called here. We are absolutely confident by the providence of God that we are not here by accident nor by happenstance. Any casual observer of this event this morning would understand that something has drawn us here. That something is the call of the gospel. That thing which has called us here is a passion to serve the church for the glory of God. The calling of Christian ministry in all its various forms, centered in the glory of God, driven by the Great Commission, directed to the health of God's people. This has drawn us here. 
All around the world, there are temples of learning, monuments to scholarship, repositories of knowledge. And the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is among these. The stature of this institution, by God's grace, bespeaks something of the glory of this calling. The tradition that has brought us to this point and propels us forward is a reminder that we are not the first, but rather that we follow in a very long line of faithfulness. We are gathered here. There is pomp and circumstance, tradition, formality, a little bling, All of this makes a statement. We are observing a ritual. We are honoring a tradition. We are witnessing a sacred commitment. Gathered here is a faculty, a faculty of teachers who are simultaneously learners, a faculty the equal of which I dare not say you could find, a faculty made up of men and women who have earned the right to teach, who have been called here to teach, who have much to teach. Gathered here in this place are students drawn by a love for God, service to the gospel, call to ministry. And we are here to renew our vision, to renew our commitment to learning, and to be reminded together the stewardship of calling and of opportunity. We gather in a beautiful place, on a beautiful campus, in safety. Or so we think. It's very easy for us to meet today under the illusion of safety. We have safety in numbers. We have safety in comfort. Safety in what we believe is security. This does not look like such a dangerous place. We can all imagine dangerous places. But this does not seem such. It doesn't look so dangerous. No lions crouch at the door. No deadly enemy appears to be camping nearby. We feel under no threat of imminent bodily harm. We're safe, we're comfortable, and we're ready to learn. And we're wrong. This isn't safe. This isn't a safe place. This isn't a safe calling. This isn't a safe world. This isn't a safe hour. I want to suggest to you that as we begin this year, we are beginning a year of living dangerously. We can delude ourselves into thinking it's otherwise. We can even, in unfaithfulness, live as if it were otherwise. We can join together in some kind of common conspiracy to ignore the fact that it is a year of living dangerously. Or we could decide to make this a year of living dangerously to the glory of God of seeing the danger and of embracing the danger and even of being the danger. First, we do need to see the danger. Christian discipleship is inherently dangerous. Christ himself told us that it was. He said of his own disciples that he sends us out as sheep among wolves. 
made very clear that there are dangers all about the Christian. Discipleship is itself a deadly, dangerous business. We are indeed surrounded by a host of enemies. It is no physical army that is encamped against us. It is rather far more significant than that. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of the darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Are you scared? I mean, how much more dangerous can it get than that? There is an army that would defeat us. There is an army that would take us captive. There are forces far beyond flesh and blood that would bring us to ruination, that would destroy our testimony, that would rob us of our effectiveness, that would destroy our souls, that would lead us away from Christ and draw us away from the gospel, that would rob us of our love for the things we ought to love and replace it with the love for the things we ought not to love. Paul says, therefore, Take on the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. What an interesting thought. Resistance. The Lord's resistance army. And having done everything to stand firm. The Apostle Paul did not say, don't worry. Be happy. Be safe. Be comfortable. Following in the teaching of his Lord, he said, this is deadly, dangerous business. Open your eyes that you see. Open your ears that you hear. Listen to the surveillance offered by Scripture. We are surrounded by a great host of enemies. There are forces that would defeat us. There are spirits that would kill us. The gospel has enemies. God has enemies. In this politically correct day of the age of the harmonious... We need to recognize that there is disharmony because there is rebellion against God. There is risk and there is danger for the one who would follow the call of Jesus to take up his cross as we take up our cross and follow him. Christian discipleship is in itself inherently an invitation to danger, to risk, to sacrifice, sometimes to death. Come, follow me, Jesus said. And in the strangest way, he said, follow me to safety. But that safety is his accomplishment, and it's his assurance, and it's his promise, and he didn't mean physically. He didn't mean emotionally. He didn't mean professionally. He he didn't mean earthly security. That's why Martin Luther in his great hymn would say, let good and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. Do we hear that? The body they may kill. His truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I want to direct your attention to the second letter of Paul to Corinthians in chapter 11. In a most amazing passage, which must have appeared even to the ears of the Corinthians to be a most amazing passage, 
Beginning in verse 16, Paul writes to the Corinthians, Again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I may also boast a little. What I am saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but in foolishness, in the confidence of boasting, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. He doesn't mean physically there. It means theologically. There are some incredibly strong words of judgment found within 2 Corinthians, not to mention 1 Corinthians. But in chapter 11, notice what he says in verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. That is not a compliment. We aren't to bear that beautifully. The church in Corinth was undiscerning. Had, had fallen in the temptation of, of believing in the super apostles, as some call them. False apostles, as Paul will call them. You'll notice he says this very clearly in verse 13. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Paul says they boast. So forgive me, Paul says, but I'm going to boast. But I'm not going to boast in order to bring, to bring attention to myself. I'm going to boast in order to demonstrate the authenticity of what an apostle looks like. In verse 21, he says, To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I'm just as bold myself. Look at verse 22 and following. Are they Hebrew? So am I. Are they Israelite? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Then look at the catalog to which Paul points us. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Artius the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. You know, we sing that song. Amazing grace... How sweet the sound. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Toils and snares. Dangers. Look at this list. And what's really interesting is that the whole point of this passage, it, it comes in Paul's defense of the authenticity of his divine appointment as an apostle. And the implication of the text seems to be that the authenticity of his role as an apostle 
is demonstrated in the dangers that he has faced. Not in safety. Paul says, if you want to look and see what an authentic disciple looks like, in this case, an authentic apostle, he says, what does it look like? Beaten three times. In this case, five times with 39 lashes. Three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's interesting. I met a man executed by the Nazis several years ago. He was a dear friend of this institution, a member of our foundation board, retired general of the United States Army, executed by the Nazis. You're not supposed to meet executed men. Living after having been shot by a firing squad. It just so happens he was shot by an incompetent firing squad. During the Battle of the Bulge, as he was captured as a prisoner of war and in the largest massacre of Allied captured forces, he was lined up with many others and shot with a machine gun on the back of a jeep. Receiving several bullet wounds, he nonetheless lived. He played dead and then crawled on his elbows through the snow for two miles to an abandoned farmhouse where he gathered enough energy to be able to press on. Paul says here, I was stoned. You're not supposed to survive that. Three times I was shipwrecked. You know, I think most of us would decide to stay on terra firma after the first time. A night and day I have spent in the deep makings of a major motion picture here. I've been on frequent journeys. That's dangerous enough, especially in that day. Dangerous from rivers. That's interesting. Dangerous from robbers. Dangers from my countrymen. And we know about that. Dangers from the Gentiles. It's tough when both the Jews and the Gentiles want you dead for different reasons. Dangers in the city. Dangers in the wilderness. Dangers on the sea. Dangers among false brethren. At night, sleepless, hungry, thirsty, without food, cold, exposure. Then there's the internal danger that he has always faced of surrender, of collapse, of unfaithfulness. Unless we forget this catalog ends with the fact that in Damascus, as his life is demanded, he is let down in a basket through a window. Most of us would consider that an apostolic humiliation. Paul pointed to it as a badge of honor. Danger. It seems that this is a mark of the authenticity of the one who is genuinely called, certainly of an apostle, certainly also of a disciple, certainly of one who would serve as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. The vindication of the true gospel ministry is not found in the recitation of constant safety, but rather in the catalog of endless and continuing and deadly dangers. This is very, very important for us. This is the great point. Danger is our business. We need to see the danger. It's to our peril that we would ignore it. It is to our impoverishment that we would miss it. It's to our confusion that we would not see it. 
As we gather together at the beginning of this academic year, we need to see the danger. We need to understand that there are forces encamped about us. We need to understand that we are called to a dangerous business, that danger is our business. We need to understand that this is, whether we identify it as such or not, if faithful, a year of living dangerously. We will either embrace it or be intimidated by it. Secondly, we need to embrace this danger. Our calling is inherently dangerous. It's dangerous spiritually. It's dangerous physically. It's dangerous emotionally. It is dangerous professionally. And that's the problem. If we conceive of the Christian ministry as a profession, we will be seeking safety. Because the logic of a profession is that we have earned the right to be respected in holding our profession. We have earned the right for the respect of a community, of the culture at large, of the society. Professionals aren't supposed to be in danger. You're supposed to be able to put the certificates on the wall, show your credentials to the world, and go about your business. Fixing teeth. Doing surgery on hearts. Practicing law. The moment you put the certificate on the wall that says minister of the gospel, you better draw concentric circles around it because it's a target. And we are a target. The Christian ministry is not a profession, brothers and sisters. It's a calling. And oftentimes the credentials are written in blood rather than in ink. In all too many cases, it doesn't end with the kind of retirement professionals seek. Ministry is not a profession. But we can believe that it is, and we can imply that it is. We can believe that it is. We can fool ourselves into the comfortable assumption that it is. Gathered together in a room like this, we look pretty good. Dressed up. At least a couple times a year, we put these expensive gowns to use. The world believes these are smart people. Look at what they're wearing. If you were inside one of these at this warm moment, you would understand that it doesn't feel so smart. But we can dress ourselves up to look professional. But the ministry is not a profession. We are not the members of a guild. We are not card-carrying members of a union. We have no bargaining rights. We ought not to be concerned with our benefits nor secure in our comforts. We ought not to seek security nor status, recognition or worldly respect. We must be willing to forfeit all of these and more. We need the spirit of Esther, the queen. If I perish, I perish. There is a trail of blood, and it's the blood of the martyrs who have watered the church, beginning with Stephen and going forward until our own time. Thousands and, yea, millions of those who have forfeited their lives for the high calling of faithfulness to Christ. For the martyrs, we draw our confidence in the knowledge that this is deadly dangerous business. But from the gospel, we also draw our confidence that we are safe in the strangest sense. We're safe 
in the arms of God. We are safe in terms of our eternal salvation. We are are safe in terms of our final destiny. We are safe in the plan and purposes of God. We are safe by his grace and to his glory. Thus we can say with Justin Martyr as he led members of his own congregation to be martyred for the faith. He said to his church members, fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, remember they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. Most of us think of these things as rather remote, distant from us. There's a letter that I read fairly regularly, written by John Calvin to the five prisoners of Lyon, May the 15th, 1553. There are several letters, actually, that he wrote to these five. The last of these letters is after they know they will be martyred. The next to the last letter is when Calvin knows they will be martyred. He writes to them. I read to you from his letter. As yet we know not what will be the event. But since it appears as though God would use your blood to sign his truth, there is nothing better than for you to prepare yourselves to that end, beseeching him so to subdue you to his good pleasure that nothing may hinder you from following whithersoever he shall call. For you know, my brothers, that it behooves us to be thus mortified in order to be offered to him in sacrifice. It cannot but be that you sustain hard conflicts in order that what was declared to Peter may be accomplished in you, namely that they shall carry you whither you would not. I had to write some difficult letters in my time. I never had to write a letter like this. I never had to write a letter to five men who were about to be martyred for the cause of the gospel and say, it looks right now like God is going to write His glory, affirm his truth with your blood. How do you write that? You can only do so because you're absolutely confident in the plan and purpose of God. You can only do that because you're absolutely confident that those who are in Christ are forever in Christ. You can only do that if you believe that serving and following Christ, and in particular these who are ministers of the gospel, Preaching and teaching the Word of God is a deadly dangerous business, and it's just going to end this way. Perhaps not for a few, but for a good many. Calvin continued when he wrote that God should have appointed you his son's martyrs is a token to you of superabounding grace. Just think about that. I think most of us would be inclined to write, I regret to inform you. But word has come to us that you're going to be dot, 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 martyred. And instead, Calvin says, this is God's superabounding grace. There now remains the conflict to which the Spirit of God not only exhorts us to go, but even to run. It is indeed a hard and grievous trial to see the pride of the enemies of truth so enormous without it getting any cheek from on high, their rage so unbridled, without God's interfering for the relief of his people. But if we remember that when it is said that our life is hid and we must resemble the dead, this is not a doctrine for any particular time, but for all times. We shall not think it strange that afflictions should continue. Written in 1553. Calvin writes back, certainly with the age of the martyrs in the Roman Empire, perhaps in mind, the martyrs of the New Testament, and says to the prisoners of Lyon, remember that the calling to be faithful unto death, with death a very real prospect, is not just for times of old, but for all times. Five hundred almost years later, it is the same. 
We need to embrace the danger. We can run from it. We can apologize for it. We can hide from it. We can delude ourselves or we can just say, yes, this is it. This is the calling. Here we are. Feels pretty safe at the moment, but we may be unsafe at any second. And, And furthermore, we may be unsafe even now from the things that are most deadly to us. There is the opportunity to embrace the danger. The U.S. Navy SEALs have a philosophy. It's short and it's sweet. doesn't take several volumes. Listen to this. This is the entirety of the United States Navy SEAL philosophy. In times of war or uncertainty, there is a special breed of warrior ready to answer our nation's call. An un- a common man with uncommon desire to succeed... Forged by adversity, he stands alongside America's finest special operations forces to serve his country and the American people and to protect their way of life. I am that man. My trident is a symbol of honor and heritage bestowed upon me by heroes who have gone before it embodies the trust of those whom I have sworn to protect. By wearing the trident, I accept the responsibility of my chosen profession and way of life. It is a privilege that I must earn every day. My loyalty to country and team is beyond reproach. I humbly serve as a guardian to my fellow Americans, always ready to defend those who are unable to defend themselves. I do not advertise the nature of my work, nor seek recognition for my actions. I voluntarily accept the inherent hazards of my profession, placing the welfare and security of others before my own. I serve with honor on and off the battlefield. The ability to control my emotions and my actions, regardless of circumstance, sets me apart from other men. Uncompromising integrity is my standard. My character and honor are steadfast. My word is my bond. We expect to lead and be led. In the absence of orders, I will take charge, lead my teammates, and accomplish the mission. I lead by example in all situations. I will never quit. I persevere and thrive on adversity. My nation expects me to be physically harder and mentally stronger than my enemies. If knocked down, I will get back up every time. I will draw on every remaining ounce of strength to protect my teammates and to accomplish the mission. I am never out of the fight. We demand discipline. We expect innovation. The lives of my teammates and the success of the mission depend upon me, my technical skill, tactical proficiency, and attention to detail. My training is never complete. We train for war and fight to win. I stand ready to bring the full spectrum of combat power to bear in order to achieve my mission and the goals established by my country. The execution of my duties will be swift and violent when required, yet guided by the very principles I serve to defend. Brave men have fought and died building the proud tradition and feared reputation that I am bound to uphold. In the worst of conditions, the legacy of my teammates steadies my resolve and silently guides my every deed. I will not fail. You read that and you understand why. The Navy SEALs are a fearsome group. I mean, when they live by this, and, and it is a codified expression. They call it a philosophy. I'm not sure that it would impress the philosophy department of many universities. It impresses the people upon whom this philosophy is impressed. What if the minister of the gospel operated by a similar code? We would not express our calling in exactly these words. But let me tell you, we better express our calling in words these as urgent as these, in words as 
as dangerous as these and words as committed as these. I'm humbled when I see that those who would serve this cause would make such a pledge and would have such an esprit de corps among themselves that they would hold each other accountable to this kind of pledge, that this kind of philosophy would guide them so that they would expect danger rather than safety, they would expect deployment rather than security, they would expect that those who serve along themselves in this high calling would be as committed as are they. We're gathered here in this service of commitment. And it could be nothing more than a commitment to make the most of an academic semester before us. Or it could be. It could be an opportunity to embrace something far greater. I want to suggest that we should embrace the danger because it is central to our identity and calling. We follow the Christ who was faithful unto a cross who calls us to take up our own cross, we are not called to physical security, rather to the security that is in Christ. The only security we claim is the security that is affirmed in the gospel, revealed in Scripture, where we are reminded that neither death nor anything can separate us from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. Secondly, we embrace the danger because we follow a risen Lord, and he is our confidence. We follow in his example. He is the one who has set before us, as the writer of Hebrews says, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The logic of the New Testament is clear. We should not expect to be received better than our Lord, a servant is not greater than his master. Third, we embrace the danger because we dare not be ashamed. Think of those who are honored in Scripture. We think of the roll call of honor that comes not just in Paul's recitation and defense of his apostleship in 2 Corinthians 11, but think of Hebrews chapter 11. Just think of those last few verses. And what shall I say in verse 32? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they may obtain a greater, better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Is that what we're supposed to aspire to? These are held up as those whose faithfulness is to be our guide and our example. Do we really believe that we deserve better than did they? There's a natural temptation to seek safety. Speaking not just to you, but among you and to myself, I want to encourage us this year as a down payment on years to come, to risk, to dare, to embrace the danger, to take courage, 
to follow risk where the gospel and the glory of God would call us. We should expect that the risk will be greatest where the gospel is breaking through the darkness. That's where we should expect the fight to be the most intense, the danger to be the greatest. I want to encourage us very specifically with global missions in view. What if our default was to go rather than to stay? To take the risk rather than to play it safe? To sacrifice? What if our default was to say now and not later? What if this year we were determined to do something, not just theoretically and not just in terms of study, but in terms of our own personal involvement and investment to get somewhere on the international field of missions where we will take some risk and do something dangerous for the glory of God? The greatest danger might be that something will take possession of us even as we find ourselves in such a field. I invite you to go commend you to go as I also plan to go to find a place that's dangerous and be dangerous we need to follow in the example of William Carey and John Patton, Jim Elliott Bill Wallace, Lottie Moon Hudson Taylor we remember Jim Elliott's words he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That invigorated and shaped an entire generation that was willing to go and, if necessary, to die. What about our generation, your generation? What about those we already know just over the last several weeks? The danger has been made clear to us. The daughter of one of our own serving in the Pacific Rim, killed in an accident. They were in a dangerous place, and she died. The wife of one of our own, serving as a missionary in Moscow, dead. If here, maybe alive. There, suddenly, dead. The stakes are high, and they've always been high. What if we embrace the danger? First of all, in missions, because this is where it is apparent through the history of the church we need the greatest encouragement. Because it is very hard to let goods and kindred go, and perhaps the kindred more than the goods. But the kingdom is made of this. Some of us need to risk in order to minister to urban America in places no one else will minister to those to whom no one else will minister. And as we speak of now rather than later, we also need to speak of here as well as there. Louisville, Kentucky ought to be a different place because Southern Seminary is here. This city should be aware of the salt and the light and the leaven represented by this institution. And even as that ministry could and will be dangerous, we will be dangerous. We need some to risk the danger of the recovery and reclamation of churches. And I speak very seriously here. We need some in your generation 
indeed many in your generation, to be brave enough to go into churches where you will have to preach the gospel and linger and stay faithfully and plant and water faithfully until you see the Lord vindicate his word and raise up his church. We need a generation willing to face the many faceted dangers of ministry, and it needs to begin here as well as there. It needs to begin now and not just later. I was in the cafeteria on Friday night, and some students were there. We had dinner together as Christopher and I were there in the evening. They said, what what advice would you give? All of them are single. And you know, when you're single at this point as a student here, you're at least temporarily in a 1 Corinthians 7 kind of situation. You can go now when you may not be able so easily to go later. You can do things now that will be far more complicated for you to do later. At this point in your life, you can risk a whole lot because you are unhindered by the responsibilities of wife and children. This may be the most opportune moment for you. We tend to think of later as when we will get to that. But what if now is it? I speak to you as one who is now 20 years and more past sitting where you sat. And I wish I had done things then. I may never have the opportunity to do now. You can go. You really can. We'll be here when you get back. Or someone will be here when you get back. Or it won't matter if you come back. (laughs) This ought to be the year of living dangerously. It ought to begin now, not later. It ought to begin here, not just there. We need to see the danger. We need to embrace the danger. But brothers and sisters, we need to be the danger. In a very different kind of sense. I was reading a work on preaching not too long ago by Ian Pitts Watson, now deceased, longtime professor of preaching in another seminary of another world. And he said, speaking of many decades of teaching, he said, I have observed over all these years of teaching that we have produced many eloquent preachers, many articulate preachers, many capable, skilled preachers. Preachers, But then the last words caught my heart. He said, but in all of my years of ministry, we have produced very few who looked dangerous. I don't want to be an institution that produces very few that looks dangerous. I want, to, I want us to be an institution that scares people. I, I want the right people to know where we are on a map and be deadly and seriously frightened about what this represents. If gathered here in this place are so many as appears committed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is a dangerous place because the forces of evil and darkness, the enemies of the gospel, have more than met their match. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. Not because we have any tactical skill but because we follow a Lord who's going to vindicate his gospel. We need to be dangerous. In the pulpit, we need to be dangerous. Don't be safe in the pulpit. Be dangerous. Preach the gospel. That's dangerous. Preach the word in season and out of season, and something's going to tremble, and something's going to crack, and somebody's going to get angry, and somebody might get fired. (laughs) 
Worst things have happened. We need to be dangerous wherever we are because there ought to be the dangerous pushing back against the forces of darkness with the gospel of light. Wherever we are, there ought to be a little whiff of danger because there's a witness to the gospel. Wherever we are, we need to be dangerous in all the right ways. Even as we see the danger and embrace the danger, we need to be the danger. We need to preach the whole counsel of God. We need to be serious in our task of transmitting the faith and equipping the saints. The cause of the furtherance of the gospel means we will be a dangerous people. We need to be those who will plant churches and claim a city and refuse to be shaken and refuse to be run out. We need to be missionaries and evangelists who are ready to live or ready to die. Shepherds ready to defend the sheep. Ready to be steadfast, standing together with the sheep. Ready to serve and to die, if necessary, for the sheep. We need to look dangerous and be dangerous. And this could be the year for us of living dangerously. Now, not just later, here not just there. And we need to encourage each other this way. We need to be embarrassed not to be dangerous. We need to be embarrassed not to seek the right kind of danger and risk the right kind of danger. We need to be embarrassed to fear that one day we might retire in security and say, I supported dangerous people. I knew some dangerous people. We need to be a dangerous people. The Battle of Agincourt in 1415 is remembered in history. The British summoned to their courage to defeat far superior French forces. Most of us know that battle not too much from history, but from Shakespeare. In the monologue of Henry V in Shakespeare's play of the same name. It was on St. Crispin's Day that that battle was fought. It was on the day of St. Crispian that the battle was won. And in the voice of Henry V, the king recites Shakespeare's imagination of the speech he is recorded to have given that day on the field of battle. His men were outnumbered. Their prospects looked bleak. But his speech transformed them and they won the great battle. This is how Shakespeare imagines the end of his speech. He says this. This story shall the good man teach his son. And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed. They were not here. And hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispian's day. Brothers and sisters, let us serve in such a way that we see the danger, that we embrace the danger, and that we become, in all the right ways, dangerous. And let us encourage each other, pray for each other, exhort each other, push each other, pull each other, go with each other. Embrace each other, pick each other up, push each other forward. And let us be accursed if on that day, a far greater day than this, we have to admit that we were not there when things got dangerous.
Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we stand today not as those who must grope our way into finding something to do, must ransack knowledge in order to find something to learn. But Father, we thank you that you've called us to this place in order to be grounded in your gospel and in your word and in this calling. And Father, we pray that you will make of this band gathered here in this place and those who are a part of us who are not with us now, including those who have gone out from us and face danger even at this moment. We pray that you will make of all of us together a band of brothers and of sisters ready for deployment, embarrassed to think that we were not there when the day of danger came. Father, may you make of us what you would have us to be for your glory. We are safe, we declare, in you. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Oh, man. I have listened to this thing for, this is my third time listening to it, and I want to listen to it again. Tell me your heart wasn't burning inside of your chest. And I'm not talking about a Mormon burning in the bosom. He was preaching the truth. He was telling us the real danger that we really face from a real enemy. We are on the battlefield or we are off of it. Are you on or are you off? Are you there to meet the real danger? And it really is dangerous. You may lose your life in this battle. And your blood means nothing. It's all about the blood of Christ. It's about the blood of Christ. And that gospel, that good news about our Savior's blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. That gospel has real enemies. Will you be counted as those who were there in the battle Or will you in the future question your manhood? Mm. Great sermon. Great sermon. And I just, I can't add anything else to it. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by the shed blood of our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.